Jewish and welcome back to the study of the Gospel of Jesus Christ according to the beloved physician Saint Luke. Um, I want to start off by acknowledging something. In the last video we were introduced to a character called Simeon and I spent the whole time calling him Simon. Now there is a very good reason for why I called him Simon. I'm a moron. Uh, but in all seriousness today we're going to be going through um, Luke chapter 2 verses 41 to 52 um, and here we see Jesus at just 12 years old and we see that he is something of a child prodigy. Now there have been great child prodigies in human history, the Kim dynasty of North Korea not among them uh, despite their claims and they claim a lot of things. For example Kim Il-sung was the first of the three kings to run the country and he still does in a way. He is supposedly the eternal leader of Korea, uh, North Korea, despite being dead, making uh, the country, making North Korea the only necocracy in the world. He's eternal leader or eternal emperor, it's some made up title he made for himself. Um, now we actually know a fair bit about his history. Um, because he didn't grow up in North Korea, um, but he was then followed by his son, uh, his son King Kim Jong Il. Now it's said that at the birth of Kim Jong Il, there was a double rainbow and a glowing new star appeared in the sky. How wonderful! Uh, he was supposedly walking at three weeks, and he was apparently talking at eight weeks. Uh, while in university, over a period of three years, he wrote over 1,500 books. And I actually, when originally studying for this, um, misread that. And I thought it said read. I'm guessing my brain saw the word wrote um, next to the word 100, or sorry, 1,500. And was like, nah. So my brain must have corrected or something. But apparently, over the three years he was in university, he wrote 1,500 books. Now... No one's ever read these books. No one can verify their existence. Um, but if you point that out, you'll probably be shot. So let's move on. Um, and apparently he also wrote operas, which were supposedly better than any in history. Uh, it seems reasonable. The first time he picked up a golf club, he scored 11 holes in one. And then he did what everyone does when finding out they're good at something. And he never did it again. He, he came, he, he played 11 holes in one, and, and then he just left. Uh, and apparently this was on the only golf cl uh, club in all of North Korea. But it's alright, there are witnesses, because his numerous bodyguards also confirmed the story and were definitely not threatened with death, uh, if they didn't. He also invented the burger at some stage in his life. Um, that's the, uh, impressive when you consider that he was born in 1941 and the burger was invented in 1885. Um, but let's not let facts get in the way of a good story. Uh, and look, there are more claims about how supposedly great he was, um, but we're sort of getting into his adult life now. If you want to know more about it, CBS did an article, and that's kind of where I got most of my information. Um, but then he was followed by his son, which is the current leader, Kim Jong-un. Um, now, to give you an idea of what people currently think of uh, the current Kim, I've actually heard him referred to by multiple people as the fat kid from North Korea. So, you know, very, very prestigious. Um, but he and his family claim he was a child prodigy, just like his father supposedly was. Um, apparently he could drive as well as fire a gun at just three years old, so you have an infant doing uh, drive-bys. 
He also apparently won a yacht race. Um, and it said despite the odds on the uh, in uh, in the article, and I'm thinking there's no way they didn't like because they push it in quotes, but there's no way someone would say despite the odds about the dear leader doing something, um, because if you ever put them into question, you will be shot, because that's just how horrible and satanic of a country it is. Um, oh yeah, he was nine by the way <laughs> during the yacht race. Apparently he was nine. This is just funny to me. Not the stuff about getting shot, that's all horrible, there's nothing funny about that, but this idea of these egomaniacs trying to pass off all this nonsense about themselves, I find that quite funny. Um, so it's quite sad, because of all the indoctrination of it. But anyway, and, and he was supposedly a very good painter and composer while at school, so sort of like his dad, artistically uh, inclined um, to paint and write stuff that uh, doesn't seem to exist. As you probably guess, all of these claims were made up. Maybe there's some, you know, maybe they are good at, they are artistic, maybe they are good at painting, maybe they are actually good at writing music. Um, maybe they were developed, maybe they did develop quite quickly as children, I don't know. But I know that at the very least the extent of the claims, and a lot of the claims are just pure fabricated, but maybe some of them are just extremely uh, exaggerated, I I'm not too sure. Um, but it's clear that there's there's no full-on truth in any of these claims, maybe a small tiny bit, but nothing proper. Um, from the research I've done, we don't really know that much about, um, sorry, we do know uh, that much, we do know a good bit about Kim Il-sung's childhood, um, like I said before, because he didn't grow up in North Korea, so we actually have because uh, I think it was established after he was born, so we actually have like records of what he actually did as a young, as a young fella. Um, but the others, they were born in North Korea into the Kim Dynasty, so everything about them, you know, is like this. The, they open the, their mouth and the sun shone forth from it. That, that sort of nonsense. Um, it's all this propaganda and lies. But I want you to keep all this in mind. That I didn't just go on some rant about uh, the Kim Dynasty. For six and a half minutes at the start of a sermon based on the Bible for no reason, right? There is a reason, and it's I want you to keep in mind something um, very important. This is what the world thinks when it thinks child prodigy. Excuse me. That's what it thinks. It thinks doing all these impressive things, speaking languages, writing books, all of this stuff. That's what it thinks when it thinks child prodigy. Today, we're going to look at a true example of a child prodigy. We're going to look and see what a child prodigy really looks like. By the way, if you're wondering why I went on the, the, the King thing specifically, I was watching John MacArthur's sermon on this, and he went through a list of child prodigies, like actual child prodigies, and uh, prodigies, and there was some like Kim Il. I, I, I can't remember what I said, but I, I, I thought he said Kim Jong-un or something. <laughs> Um, from and it was from Korea, and I thought, no, John, don't be that. But you know, I I don't think that's, I don't think that's who he's referring to. Um, but I just thought of that and I thought, you know, why not? Essentially, so keep in mind everything I've just said, all the stuff he apparently was able to do, these two people were apparently able to do. That's what the world thinks when it thinks clever children. Today we're going to look at what a clever child actually looks like. So let's finally get into it. Luke chapter 2, verses 41 to 52. Now his parents went to Jerusalem every year at the feast of the Passover. And when he was 12 years old, they went up according to custom. And when the feast was ended as they were returning, the boy Jesus stayed behind in Jerusalem. 
His parents did not know it, but supposed him to be in the group, um, they went a day's journey. Supposing him to be in the group, they went a day's journey. But then they began to search for him among their relatives and acquaintances. And when they did not find him, they returned to Jerusalem searching for him. After three days, they found him in the temple, sitting among the teachers, listening to them and asking them questions. And all who heard him were amazed at his understanding and his answers. And when his parents saw him, they were astonished. And his mother said to him, Son, why have you treated us so? Behold, your father and I have been searching for you in great distress. And he said to them, Why were you looking for me? Did you not know that I must be in my father's house? And they did not understand the saying that he spoke to them. And he went down with them and came to Nazareth and was submissive to them. And his mother treasured up all these things in her heart. And Jesus increased in wisdom and in stature and in favour with God and man. So nine minutes in, we finally actually begin. So in verses, we go to verses 41 and 42. And here we see that Jesus and his family are going up to Jerusalem at Passover um, at the time when Christ was about 12 years old. Now, there were three feasts every year uh, for which people usually made the trip to Jerusalem. Of the other two, one was Pentecost, which I'm sure you're familiar with or you've at least heard of. Um, I'm sure you at least know of the Pentecost that took place in the book of Acts. However, while people had initially been required to make the trip to Jerusalem for all three of these occasions, now things were a bit different. Uh, at the time of Jesus, it was said that only men must make the journey to Jerusalem at the time of the Passover. If anyone else wanted to go to Jerusalem for the Passover, um, or they wanted to go to the other two feasts, uh, they were allowed. And in fact, it was actually seen um, as a sign that that person was very spiritual. So to see Mary going to Passover, um, to Jerusalem for the Passover feast uh, with her husband was a sign that she was a very spiritual woman who cared deeply about the things of God. Now at the time, a person was considered an adult in Jewish culture when they reached the age of 13. And it was customary for the father to bring his son with him to Passover the two years before he turned 13. And so here we have Jesus at the age of 12 going to Passover. Now, this may have been his first time, um, but it's more likely that it was his second. So we're going on to verse 30, uh, 43. Here we see that Jesus stayed behind and his parents, they didn't notice. There are two reasons why they didn't notice. Uh, first is the fact that this was Jesus. By all accounts, he was a good little boy. In fact, by the account of the Bible, he was perfect. The law said to honour your parents, and that's what Jesus did. How do we know Jesus did that? Well, like I said, the Bible says he was sinless and perfect. He never misbehaved and was never anywhere other than where he should have been. Now, in this passage, Jesus was not misbehaving. He wasn't trying to grieve his parents. We'll learn what he was really doing in a few verses' time, but it wasn't sinful. I want to talk briefly now about the infancy gospels, just to... Because I want to talk about these because I watched a thing on them recently and reminds me of how ridiculous they are. Um, these uh, were a group of books which claimed to be written by the apostles. And to this day, you will still see Egypt's online trying to claim that the reason these books were left out of the Bible was because the Vatican was trying to hide the truth or some rubbish which they just made up. The real reason they weren't seen as being a part of scripture is because they were obviously not inspired by God. In order to see that, 
all you have to do is actually read them. They were often written by Gnostics in order um, to sort of in intersect or place Gnostic beliefs onto the story of Christ. Uh, and there are famous stories from these Gospels. If you know anything about them, you might have heard, for example, of the story of Jesus turning clay birds into real living birds. In fact, today, um, I guess by the providence of God, uh, me and a friend were talking about theology and I can't remember how we got here but we did actually end up talking about it and he said that he'd heard that there was meant to be a and he's a Christian he knows that he knows that the current canon is the proper canon but he uh well he's a Catholic so yeah but he knows the Gnostic Gospels aren't meant to be in there but he heard someone say that there's meant to be a fifth gospel and he brought up the story about the birds turning into clay so you know a very very famous story so it's the, the providence of God I suppose working there um but yet, to this day, you will still see people claiming that this stuff should be in there, even though there's nothing in the Bible that says Jesus went around turning things from clay into free living creatures. But here's the thing. That's not the worst. That's not the strangest story in these um, books. There were also many other stories in these books about the infant Jesus, and that's why they're called the infancy gospels, is they're about the infant Jesus. For example, there are numerous instances in these books where Jesus flat out murders other children i think at one stage in the same book as the clay pigeons someone broke something that jesus made so he just killed them and another time he pushed a child off a roof um and there's other stories as well and i'm gonna bring this up and i i just have to say before i tell you this i am telling you this to show you how horrible these books are I'm not telling you this to be crude or offensive or anything like that. I just want to demonstrate why these books are sinful and why they are not written by God. This is a very disgusting story I'm about to relate to you. I'm not saying this to get shock value. I just want to make the point and I think this story makes it the best. And so, anyway, the story basically is that there is a story in one of the Gnostic Gospels where Jesus was doing a lot of miracles. Then he and his family, um, you know, Mary and Joseph, and this is when he was a little baby. This wasn't 12 years. This was when he was just born. Um, in fact, there was another, I'll tell you about the, the, the story in a minute. Well. So basically, this was when he was only a couple of weeks old, maybe even a few days old. Um, and his family went to a hotel. And there was a man in his hotel, in the hotel, um, and the way I heard it described is he couldn't enjoy his wife because he was having some troubles if you get what i mean he was having trouble in the bedroom and he was told i think by the hotel owner or something or the innkeeper or whatever it was that there was a miracle performing baby um in the other room and to go and see if the baby could do anything so he goes in this fully grown man takes one look at the child and then his troubles were gone instantly and the next morning he personally thanked joseph for the help jesus had given him so in this story, there is a man who takes one look at a child and is immediately sexually aroused and is portrayed as a good thing. That's why these books were not included in the Gospels. I mean, look, I'm not a father, I'm not a violent man either. If 
if someone came up to me and said, hey, your child made me feel that way, and they were like thanking me or proud of it, that fell I'd leave on a stretcher. Now, I'm, be, I'm obviously, I'm being hyperbolic. Obviously, I wouldn't just point, you know, I wouldn't do that, but you, you get the point I'm trying to make. That's a disgusting thing. That's a horrific thing, and it's passed off here as a good thing, as a triumph. And the other story I wanted to tell, I want what I didn't want to tell you about, but I suppose I might as well because I mentioned it, um, was a story of Mary, I think, and um, after she gave birth to Jesus, someone went off and told someone else about the virgin birth, and that person didn't believe them, so they went off and inspected Mary. Is just like a complete stranger, and they're in a cave in this version for some reason. Like, imagine you're after. Well, actually, no. In this version, Mary hadn't given birth. A cloud had come around her, and the baby had sort of just appeared in her arms, even though she had been pregnant, so it had been in her womb. But anyway, but after this happens, a stranger wandered into the cave. Essentially, from Mary's point of view, it's like, hey, I want to inspect you to make sure you're actually a virgin. Um, this is the same book that these two stories have taken place in and it's very clear when you read this the people who say that this should be in the bible have clearly just never bloody read it they've just never read it they just see the name gospel and they're like i don't like christianity so i'm gonna make a big hullabaloo about this but look if anyone ever tries to claim that these books should be in the bible go off read the book that they're talking about and then you don't have to make an argument as to why it shouldn't be in the bible you just have to relay the events of that book to them um Sometimes that won't work because sometimes like people, a lot of people know about the gospel of Judas where Judas is secretly the good guy and so on. But a lot of the time they won't actually know because they won't actually read it. They'll have just heard the argument from someone else and they'll be parroting. Anyway, I want to move on from this. Uh, but I will say before I do that this is what happens when worldly people try to impose their own values on Jesus' story. What happened in the story, like I said, and there are plenty of other things and plenty of other stories, it's purely horrific and disgusting, but it was portrayed as a wonderful thing. That's why these books were never considered a part of scripture. That and a few other reasons which I won't get into here. The 66 books of the Bible that we currently have are the word of Almighty God. We follow them. We believe them. We don't follow any nonsense that claims to be part of the Bible simply because it makes that claim about itself. Now, let's get back to the actual Bible and the actual Jesus and leave that horrific yuckiness behind. Um, and now, like, we'll go back to the story. There was another reason why Jesus' parents didn't realise that he was missing. And the reason is sort of given to us in the next verse, verse 44, where we see um, his parents finally realise that Jesus is not there and start to look for him. Now, the second, re uh, the second reason that they didn't realize he was gone was because of the way caravans worked and they were traveling in a caravan and you see a caravan was basically a large group of people going from one place to another um, and there were three groups generally within jewish caravans i'm not sure if others operated like this but they did in jewish culture there was the children the women and the men now men tend to be faster than women and children because they are on average taller uh, this means we have longer legs and therefore longer strides and this means we just walk faster um, now in order to ensure that the men didn't just walk too far away from the women the women walked in front of the men but the women had the same problem with the children that the men had with the women they were 
faster naturally than the children. So the way that the caravan worked was that at the front you had the children, then after them you would have the women and then finally the men. So the children would set the pace, everyone else would walk along at that same pace. Um, now Jesus was at a period in his life where because he was nearly an adult by Jewish standards, he was 12 and to be an adult, like I said, you had to be 13, he could have walked with the other men. However, since he wasn't quite an adult yet, he could have walked with the children either. Now, Joseph likely just assumed that Jesus was walking with the other children. Mary, on the other hand, who was closer to the children, would either have assumed Jesus was with the children and that she couldn't see him, or that he was maybe back with the men, maybe talking to Joseph or something else like that. But neither of one of them would have been too surprised at the fact that they couldn't see Jesus, because as well that they were surrounded by friends and family. So they were like, and they were a very close-knit community, the Jews were at this time. So, you know, everyone would have trusted everyone else. So they likely assumed Jesus had come with them, that he was there, because he was always a good boy. He was always on time. He always did the right thing. So they just assumed he's probably off with someone else on a play and a chat and doing whatever. Now, at the end of the day of walking, everyone would stop for the rest, uh, stop for the night to rest. And during this time, everyone would make their way back towards their own families. Now, Mary and Joseph would have spent a long time looking for Jesus before you realised that he wasn't there. In verse 45, we see that they returned to Jerusalem to look for him. And in verse 46, we see that it took them three days to find Jesus. Now, to me, when I first read it, uh, it seemed like the text was saying that they spent three days in Jerusalem searching. However... I heard a few people, I heard R.C. Sproul and John MacArthur, um, they both seem to agree that, that the three days in the text simply refers to a day spent travelling away from Jerusalem, then they realise and they spend the day travelling back, and then they spent the day looking the third day. Uh, I think the second one makes more sense, to be honest, after hearing it. Um, after finding that Jesus was not with them, his family waited until the next day, probably getting very little sleep in the process. They wouldn't want to travel in night, especially considering that they'd be traveling back alone. The entire caravan would not have gone back to look for Jesus. Um, so they would have had to just sit there, wait, rest, so they could make the long journey back. Probably going a little bit faster because they were setting their own pace and they weren't waiting behind a bunch of children. Um, but it still would have taken them about a day to get where they were going. Um, then they get there uh, at the end of the second day probably spend a little bit of time looking but not too much time and then they go and they stay somewhere and then on the third day that's when they find Jesus and then it's here that we see how Jesus was a child prodigy unlike those people I mentioned at the beginning the fellas from Korea this was a real child prodigy he didn't care about winning races or speaking languages or composing operas or writing books that don't seem to exist. What he cared about were the things of God. They were most important to him. Jesus himself echoes this idea later on in his life. If we go to John chapter 6 verse 38. We see that it says, For I have come down from heaven not to do my own will, but to do the will of him who sent me. Jesus cared about God more than anything else. And so here he was after three days in the temple. He had likely spent the majority of that time actually in the temple asking questions and learning. And we see that he was listening to them, showing that he could grasp, that is the religious leaders, showing he could grasp 
the things that they were saying. It also shows that he had not yet, uh, this, this thing that he had to ask questions and was genuinely learning things. Um, it, it shows that while he was growing in divine knowledge, or he was divinely growing in knowledge, however you want to put it, he had not yet fully, um, he had not yet gained full divine knowledge. It's important to remember that Jesus learned from the religious leaders. Of course, whether or not he had stayed at the temple, he would have been divinely granted all the knowledge when God sovereignly willed it. But for now, Jesus learned uh, from and respected religious leaders. While he would no longer need to learn from them at a later stage, I don't think he ever stopped respecting them. Of course, he had many negative run-ins with the Pharisees, but his problem um, with them wasn't that they were religious leaders. It was that they were spiritual abusers. People can get such a chip on their shoulders talking about the religious leaders and they like to think that Jesus pretty much hated anyone who fit that description. But that's not true. For one thing, Jesus himself was a religious leader. He was a rabbi. Also, when you look at how he interacted with the religious with other religious leaders, it becomes clear what his problem really was. When he was talking to those who acted wrongly, like most of the Pharisees, um, that he met, he clearly wasn't a very big fan of them. But when it came to people like Nicodemus, who genuinely wanted to know God's truth, he was he was very different towards them. It was a very different story. It was, I'm sorry, if Jesus were to come back today to challenge religious leaders, as a lot of people seem to think that, you know, this is something people say, well, if Jesus came back today, he'd this and that and the other. But I think if Jesus came back today to challenge religious leaders, he likely would go, um, sorry, he wouldn't likely go anywhere near most churches. He would go to people like Joel Osteen, Kenneth Copeland, Joyce Myers, and so on. The average decent pastor wouldn't get the same treatment as most of the Pharisees. He may correct some of their theology in some instances, like he did with Nicodemus, and teach some things. But so long as they were willing to grow and learn, I can't imagine he would treat them the same way he would treat someone like Joel Osteen in this hypothetical situation. If we go to verse 47, here we get another glimpse into how much of a child prodigy Jesus was. He wasn't just asking simple questions and listening to the simple answers. He was asking tough, hard-hitting questions. And when he got back the very likely complex answers, he fully understood them. And he himself was actually giving answers, the verse says. And so much so that everyone else who was there was genuinely amazed at his understanding. All the religious leaders looking around like, hey, this is hard stuff. It took me years to get this. And you had this 12-year-old, not even an adult yet, and he gets it. It was an impressive thing. And, you know, I know it wasn't God's will for us to know. Otherwise, it would be recorded in Scripture. But I... We'd just love to know the questions he asked them and what he said to them. I would love to know a lot of what Jesus did in the bits that aren't recorded, not just in the, the the years of his life that aren't recorded, but also just in the ministry. The sermons we never got to hear that he likely preached. Of course, we got all the main stuff. We got the stuff we needed to hear. But I would love to hear all of his sermons. And, you know, perhaps that'll be a part of heaven. And when we get to paradise, perhaps we will hear them. Um... I would like to. I think it would be great. But here we see Jesus fully understood the things of God. 
He didn't know them off the bat, but when he heard the explanation, he understood. He had a mind for complex things. He was a clever fella. We go to verse 48, and here we see that Mary and Joseph still didn't really understand one thing about Jesus. He was sinless. They thought he'd been disobedient and run off in an act of naughtiness, but that wasn't the case. If you go to verse 49, we see Jesus' justification for running off. He asked Mary and Joseph, why were you looking for me? Wasn't it obvious that I would be here? Jesus, still not yet possessing divine knowledge, just assumed that his parents would notice he was gone and would know that he was in the temple. When he stayed at the temple for three days and they never came to get him, he must have just assumed that they understood what he was doing and were fine with it. And we'll finish off now with verses 50 to 52. After Jesus explained himself, his parents didn't understand. So, and where they went. Back home. And from this point on, Jesus was always obedient to his parents, the verse uh, makes clear to say. Now, I don't think that the text that says that Jesus from that point on was submissive to his parents um, was trying to suggest that before he had not been submissive to his parents completely. I think that what he was really trying to say uh, was that he maybe took more care to actually know for sure what his parents' will was. Because he did act against his parents' will, not out of disobedience, but out of ignorance. And that's very different here. Uh, and, and, well, that's not very different here. That's very different, and that's what he was doing here. So I think he, he tried to never have that ignorance again. He tried to always know what the parents' will was, so he could um, follow their will. He could act in accordance to their will in a better way. So now we move on to the application. What can we get from this passage? Well, I want to start off with something that's not really in the passage, but... I just want to say, I hope what I said about the Gnostic stuff will be helpful to you. There are a lot, and I mean a lot, of nonsense books that people claim should be in the Bible because they have the word gospel in the title. And I've actually had the idea of writing just some book and calling it the Gospel of Ross and then asking these people if it should be in the Bible. After all, it fit the only criteria that they seem to care about in terms of canonization. Just remember, these books were excluded from the Bible for a reason. Some basement dweller on TikTok isn't going to have some insight which the greatest minds of the early church didn't have about the book. In all honesty, these people who claim that it should be in the Bible have never read any of these books. They might have read an article or watched a video about it, but they've never read the books themselves. Whereas we know that the people who excluded the books read them it's likely because they read them that they excluded them from the bible as for what we can actually get from the passage itself i hope you have a greater appreciation for theology i've heard people say that they aren't interested in theology they just want to love god here's the problem with that though theology is the study of god it's getting to know him how can you love someone you don't know can you imagine that? Imagine if you're married, think about it. If you're not married, just imagine you are your husband or your wife or whatever. Someone's asking you about them, you say, Oh, I love say my wife. I love my wife so much. Oh yeah, what's she like? Oh I don't know, I just love her. Well, why do you love her? Oh I just love her. Okay, well what do you love about her? Oh I just love her. Okay, what does she like to do? Oh I have no idea, I just love her. Well what are her hobbies? What are her pastimes? I have no idea, I just love her. What's her favourite colour? No idea, just love her. 
what's her name no idea just you know what i mean and and here's the thing about the name thing as well if you were to say um yahweh to most of these people they wouldn't know what you were talking about they don't know god's own name you know but here but jesus in this passage is a theologian he's learning theology he's learning about god that's what theology is learning about god how can you love someone you don't know Honestly, how can you love someone you do not know? I understand if you're a new Christian. All you know about God is that he saved you. And you've got a lot of learning to go. And you know basically nothing about God. But you know that he saved you. And from that, you love him. That's fair enough. Five years down the line, however. And you still know nothing about the God you've claimed to love for the last five years. That's ridiculous. You should know, you should be trying to learn about God, trying to strive to know the things of God with every moment of your life. You should be trying to learn about God. It's not enough to just say, oh, I love him, I love him. If you loved him, you would want to know about him. I love him, but I don't care to know about him. That's not love, that's apathy. That's pure apathy. I don't actually care about him. I don't want to know about him. I love him whoever he may be the most you could actually do is love an idea of god but unless you know who god is you cannot know whether or not that idea you have of god is actually god and if from the moment of your conversion to now you never bother to learn about god chances are that idea is flawed there are people who spend years of their life studying theology who still have a flawed idea of who god is so chances are, if you've never bothered to try and learn about him, you have a very flawed view of him. If you love God, learn about him. Get to know him. Don't just say you love him. Show it in the way you treat him. Now, I don't know who's listening to this, but I do know one thing. You are a sinner. How do I know this? Well... The Bible tells me so. It tells me you're a sinner, I'm a sinner, we're all sinners. And the only way sinners can ever hope to be saved from their sin is repentance and belief in the gospel. Believing God and knowing God and loving God. Having that relationship with God. Not just saying you love him, but actually loving him. We can't work our way to heaven. We can't do some good thing that gets us into heaven. You rely on your works, you will go straight to hell because that's the that's the alternative. It's not heaven or lesser heaven, heaven or nothing. It's heaven or eternal damnation. Do you want to go to eternal damnation? I don't. But I don't have to. I deserve it because of my sin, but I don't have to go. Because Christ died on the cross for me. His blood shed in Calvary paid for my sins. And now God has revealed himself to me. I didn't have faith because I made a right choice. I didn't repent because I made a right choice. God revealed himself to me. And because of his irresistible grace, I was unable to do anything but repent and believe in him and try to get to know him and try to love him. And I fail. I do fail and I do still sin. I'm not perfect. No one is. I try. 
because I love him. I'm part of my trying is trying to know him and who he is. You want to be saved? Come to Christ. It is our only hope. That's the end of the sermon now. I'm just going to say something really quick about what I'm going to be on one plan I'm doing next. If you're not interested in that, well, goodbye. Thanks for watching. Um, so the plan for the next little while, I think I mentioned this in the last video, is I want to do, um, every, because Luke is 24 chapters long and there's 12 minor prophets, every two chapters of Luke I'm going to do a minor prophet. I'm just going to do it in the order that they appear in the, in the Bible. So starting with Hosea, ending with Malachi. So we're just finished the second chapter of Luke now, which we finished in three, and we, we did Luke chapter one in, I think, 16 um, parts. Sorry if you can hear that, that's my dog. But we did Luke chapter 16, or Luke chapter one in 16 parts. We did Luke chapter two in three parts. So, you know, big change there. Um, but yeah, so we're, we're going to be moving on now to Hosea. Um, and then I, I'm not sure what we're doing after that. Uh, what we're doing after Jose, we're doing another two. We're doing chapter three and four of Luke, then another minor prophet, and so on and so forth. And so what will happen is we'll finish Luke, and then we'll have to do Malachi, and then I'll move on to Acts, um, the book of Acts, and Acts is has as many chapters as Matthew, so it'll be one chapter of Acts, one of Matthew, and then we'll finish Acts, and then we'll have one chapter of Matthew, and then I'm gonna do John. First, second, third, John and Revelation. So I'm going to do all the works of John and then I'm going to do Mark. Um, and I'm going to do, because there's 150 Psalms and 16 verses of, or 16 chapters of Mark, I'm going to do Mark um, interwoven with Psalms. I think I'll do the Mark Psalms thing before John, but let me know what you think. Let me know what you want to see done. Um, but yeah, so that'll mean that I finish the Psalms before I finish Mark because I'll do one chapter of Mark and then 10 Psalms. Um, and then just to get all, all, then we'll have all the Gospels done. And we'll have actually a good chunk of the Old Testament, well not a good chunk, we'll have 12 books of the Old Testament done. No, 13 books, because of Psalms, we'll have 13 books of the Old Testament done, including all of the Psalms. And we'll also have all the Gospels done, uh, we'll have three epistles and Revelation done, and that'll be quite good, I think. And after that I want to do... Genesis to Second Kings or Second Chronicles, I'm not sure because I think Second First and Second Chronicles is just retelling a lot of the story of the books that happened just before them. So I don't know if I'll do First and Second Chronicles right after. Uh, it is my life and go. It is my goal in life. Excuse me to preach on every book in the Bible. Uh, I don't know if I will actually achieve that, but I'd like to. Um, so yeah, but I think I'm going to do Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, so on and so forth. Because it's all one continuous story from Genesis up until about Second Kings, Second Kings or Second Samuel. I'm not sure if Kings or Samuel comes first. I think Kings comes second. So yeah, so that's about it's between nine and eleven books. I'm not sure how many. Um, and then after that, I don't know what I'm gonna do. Uh, I'll probably be in my seventies by then because that is a lot. <laughs> but you know, we we will see. Um, so you know, stick around for that, I suppose. But. Yeah, that's that's the sort of the uh the plan for the future. And I tell you what, people are afraid of some books. Like some people, like a lot of people, mainly afraid of Revelation. It's such a, you know, such a confusing book, and we don't really know. You know, it's easy to go the wrong way with Revelation. It's easy to, you know, get a lot of it wrong. I'm not afraid of Revelation. I'm actually quite looking forward to doing Revelation. 
I'm quite looking forward to it. I don't know when I'm going to do Isaiah, but I'm looking forward to Isaiah, which is, I think, the second longest. Every time I Google it, it says Isaiah is the longest book in the Bible, even though I think Psalms is actually longer. But anyway, it doesn't matter. I'm looking forward to Isaiah. I'm looking forward to doing the Psalms, even though it would be such a long and arduous, well, I don't want to say arduous, but it would be such a long thing. I'm looking forward to the Psalms. I am terrified of doing Numbers, Leviticus and Deuteronomy and the latter part of Exodus because I don't know how I'm going to do it. Um, it's all, but of course, all God's word is profitable and so on. Anyway, I've kept you here for 14 minutes. This is easily the longest one I've ever done. So I don't want to keep you any longer. Um, thanks for watching this video. I hope you liked it and found it enjoyable. Most of all, I hope you found it edifying. Please be sure to join us next time as we continue the study of the wonderful word of our wonderful God. Thanks for watching. Goodbye. God bless. And Slan Akaskar Mahakut.